Today on The Art Dealer's Show, you'll hear owner of Artifacts Gallery in Cambria, California, Thad Markham, say... The one thing I've noticed since the advent of the internet is other galleries are not enemies. We're all doing the same thing. There is enough business to go around. We can actually help each other more than we do hurt each other. Hello and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and on the show today for the hour, we have my guest, Thad Markham, designer and publisher of the Out of the Bowl series, and also the owner of Artifacts Gallery in Cambria, California. We have something to celebrate here at The Art Dealer Show podcast. So let's drop into the old art dealer bar, and I'll, uh, I'll share with you what's going on. When I started in this business, and I wouldn't be surprised if you're like me in this too, I didn't want to see it just as a job, just as a way to pay the rent. I wanted to see it as a craft, something that the more time and energy I put into it, the measurably better that I would be getting at it. And just to make sure that I wasn't missing what levels of development I was having along the way, I wanted to give myself goals, ways to identify that I had truly gotten better at this skill, the skill of selling art. Now, some of them were fairly obvious. I wanted to hit certain price points, first 10,000, then 25, then 50, then 100, then even a million. I wanted to sell a certain number of pieces. I wanted a certain number of collectors. And some of these things over time, I I, I achieved a lot of them. Some of them I'm still running after, which is great. I don't ever want to run out of these goals. But when I started this podcast, I saw it too as being something like starting as an art dealer. This too is a craft. This too involves skill and This, too, is one of those things that the more you do it, the more energy you put into it, the better you get at it. And I hope I hope I'm already showing a little bit of that. And if I haven't, well, I hope you stick around longer and eventually I will. So like when I started in the art business here, too, I set up a number of benchmarks to set as goals and also as indicators that I had gotten better over time. Now, some of them I achieved. Some of them I achieved a little while ago. Certain number of listeners. We have what seems to be roughly around a thousand. And that, from what I'm told, for a niche market podcast, that's a big achievement. And I have you to thank for it. Uh, Other ones are how many downloads we get during a first release on the first day. It's a very good number and it grows with every single episode. Again, thank you very much for making that possible. Uh, But some of them are just fun. And some of them I value a little bit more than others. And one of the ones I really valued is one that I probably shared with no one until this moment. And that is, I wanted to get a good, solid complaint email. I wanted someone to get angry enough where they had to stop right in the middle of listening to one of the episodes, go to their computer, and write an email. Not just any email, but it had to be well thought out. It had to be a real little thesis in there. And I got one of those. And it couldn't come from just anybody. It had to be from somebody with inside the profession who knows what we're talking about, who understands it, who, who their 
anger and their judgment is coming from years of experience, and we got that too. Now, I'm not going to say that person's name, and I'm not going to even say what the podcast it was that he was complaining about, and I'm not going to even say what the complaint itself or the nature of it was, but I want to thank him too. I want to thank you very, very, very much for your enthusiasm, for your passion for what we're talking about here. I will take the complaints along with the compliments any day of the week. So I want to raise my glass. I want to raise it high to our first complaint email. Thank you very much. The infamous bank robber Willie Sutton was once asked by the reporter Mitch Onstead why he robbed banks. According to Onstead, he replied, because that's where the money is. And that's why I read and advertise myself in Art World News religiously, because that is where our money is, or at least where our art business is. It's where we find each other and have for the past 20 years. In that time, Art World News has shared with us the comings and going of our industry and has given us a good heads up on the trends that are coming our way. It's the very reason why month after month, people in galleries throughout the world pick up their copy of Art World News and read it from cover to cover. And it's exactly the same very reason why month after month, the advertisers in our business, the creators of molding and art distributors put their ads in there to talk to that very same group of people that Art World News has so beautifully put together all in one place. You found yourself the perfect artist. You've been grooming that artist. And now is the time. You're going to have a show. You didn't get the cheap wine. You got the good wine. You didn't just let the walls be. You put a fresh coat of paint on. As a matter of fact, this time, it's not Ricky from down the hall. It's a professional bartender who looks damn good in a tux. Got a lot of money on the line and certainly a lot of time and your reputation. So what are we going to do to put out the word? Well. We got a brand new intern named Katie, and she's a little bit gifted with the writing. So she's going to go put the announcement up on PR Web after she... What the hell are you doing? It's time to call a professional at this stage of the game. You need to call yourself Relevant Communications, owned by Allison Zucker Perlman, a professional in the art gallery world who has been promoting artists and art publishers and art distributors and art galleries for God knows how long and doing it beautifully. Her client list is a real who's who. So right now, go on over to relevantcommunications.net and find out what they can do for you. Katie's great and all, but not for a serious job like this. My guest today is Thad Markham. And if you don't know Thad, let me tell you a little bit about him. For the past 25 years, Thad has owned and operated Artifacts Gallery in Cambria, California. Cambria, California, if you're not familiar with it, is a beautiful community just to the south of San Simeon. And if you're not familiar with San Simeon, you'll be familiar with this next part. San Simeon is the home of where the Hearst Castle can be found, a destination spot where tens of thousands of tourists make a pilgrimage to every single year to take the tour of the once-occupied palace of the Hearst family. And... You would imagine 
that being close to such a big attraction, the fan gets to see thousands of tourists every year walking up and down his streets. And that would be true to some degree. But let me tell you, it's not the secret to his success. I've been going there to visit Thad and his gallery for many years now, and I have seen dozens of businesses come and go and close just as quickly as they open, galleries included. Getting a lot of traffic, and I'm sure this comes as no surprise to many of us out there, is definitely not the only secret to success. It's what you do with the traffic once they arrive. And that, that's about business savvy. And Thad has it in spades. Thad's got a great story to share with us and a lot of wonderful insights. And it's the reason why I decided this, like a couple of the other episodes we've done in the past, I was going to break down into two parts. The first one We got to meet Thad and get an understanding of how he rolled into the business himself. In the second one, we pick it up on a lot of his insights on what it is to own a gallery in today's times. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly had a great time talking with him and took a lot away from it myself. Do you want to get into that type of thing, or do you want to start with? Let's start with you. Okay. Well, you know, and this is one funny part: is so many people I've been interviewing so far that I've known for years, like you. Yeah. And you think you really know people, and the fact is, you and I have never talked about how really? you got into this field. No. Oh well, I think no, no. It's it's an interesting story. I mean, I uh, grew up in in Southern California in Big Bear. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up ski racing and and up in the mountains, kind of isolated from everyone. I broke away from there, and I went to uh, UC Santa Barbara, and I got my degree in engineering. I was a, a smart kid in school. I, you know, my family's very low income, and my dad was working for a, a rich guy, helping him build his house, and I was helping my dad, and the guy said to me, hey, uh, I hear you're good at math, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm good at school. I get straight A's. He said, you should be an engineer. Yeah, that's the highest paying four-year degree that exists. And I said, that's fantastic. I'm in. <laughs> and so, you know, I ended up... And sometimes the worst reason to do anything. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, in retrospect, this is all crystal clear. But at the time, you know, I was a kid in a family that was struggling financially, and I thought, I want to make money. And we're about the same age. We're talking about the mid-1980s right now. Yeah, I graduated high school in 1986. <laughs> so I ended up getting a bunch of scholarships, and I went to school uh, to get my degree in mechanical engineering. And of course... It wasn't for me, uh, but I didn't have the power or strength for some reason to get out of it. So I struggled and battled through it uh, and was able to get out and get this degree in mechanical engineering, of all things. So I ended up finally landing a job uh, designing aircraft interiors. Uh, I was at that job for about three weeks, and I literally started to go crazy. So, let me guess, Orange yeah. County area? Yeah. I yeah. was down. I at McDonnell Douglas exactly. and all those guys. Yeah, yeah. I was a little subcontractor uh-huh. at McDonnell Douglas. Uh, I loved being at the beach. I, yeah. I lived with a bunch of guys in Newport Beach. I love that aspect, but uh, you know, this, this job put me in a cubicle, put me on a computer screen all day. Uh, I remember not seeing daylight for months on end because I would get to work before the sun would come up. I would leave after the sun went down. And I literally started going crazy. So who the hell cares if you're by the beach? You, you, you could right. be in Nebraska. So true. So I, you know, I wasn't suited for that work, and but I was making a lot of money, and I, I, I literally started going crazy. And, and and I don't mean like I was kind of going crazy. I mean I was literally going crazy. Like I, I started getting extremely depressed. I started having panic attacks. I was anxious all the time, 
And I, I literally remember thinking, uh, putting gas in my car and thinking, you know, the next time I get gas in my car, if I feel this horrible, I'm going to consider ending my life. Wow. So it's funny, you know, and how, how it gets to that level so yeah. quickly. Heard but there of, really is a part inside you, isn't there, that, that if you go astray enough, starts getting very vocal. It does. I literally I mean, had the same similar experience. I was working at Muzak. Oh, yes. About I remember cubicle Muzak. job. Yep. And I remember walking down the hallway in this office in some industrial park. And it's the only time in my life I've had an absolute clear external voice say something to me within my own head. You know, I'm almost like a, you know, a psychotic moment. And it's it. Get out. Get out now. Get out. Get out uh, now. Life will, uh, life will show you whether you like it or not. Yeah. You know? And so realized at that point, I, I had, you know, luckily been around enough people who had been depressed and been anxious. And, you know, I realized you got you to tell somebody. Mm-hmm. So I pulled my dad aside and I said, hey, I'm pretty miserable. Thought occurred to me uh, maybe to take myself out. At which time he said, okay, great. And reached down and grabbed a phone book and looked for a therapist and said, we got to jump on this right away. And I tried a bunch of therapists and, and you know, geez, uh, three or four different people. And Did not one therapist say, you know, you could just not be doing this? Oh, you know what's so funny? No one did it. Everyone, everyone kind of just had their own techniques. You know, one uh-huh. guy wanted to actually come with me to work and then talk me through the times when I got anxious. One guy wanted to make uh, little cassette tapes for me to listen to to calm down. So everything was about adapting to my situation instead of changing my situation, which was really interesting. And, you know, so I kind of played along with that. And, and you know, the money of the job was real appealing. I, I was making at the time thirty-five grand, which, uh, you know, I think the five years earlier when I left to go to college, my parents were probably making about twelve grand. Mm-hmm. I remember that because I filled out a college application. They mm-hmm. wanted to know my parents' income. So I had no idea that oh, we were at the poverty level, but... You know, we, we actually were. So the money was really appealing. I felt kind of successful on one end, but I just hated what I was doing. Yeah, so I, I kind of kept going into these therapy sessions, and it was kind of getting a little bit better. But then I did decide to quit my job. And yeah. once I decided to quit my job, everything started looking up. I didn't know what I was going to do. And my dad gave me great advice, and I said, Dad, I just don't know what to do. I know I don't like this, but I don't know what to do. And he said, do something different. And if you don't like that, then do something different again. That's fantastic. And then do something different again. And that's fantastic. There's fun in that process of trying something new. And maybe you'll fall into something. There's also just a wisdom in and of itself of quitting your way to happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I like that theory, you know. You don't have to know what to do. Just do something different. Uh And um, my parents at the time had moved to Cambria. And turns out after I graduated from high school, my mom really didn't have anything to do. So she started a little retail business, and turns out she, she's a retail genius. And so my dad was doing construction, and my mom started this little tiny retail business, and it just took off. They were first up in Big Bear, and she had a really successful retail gift business. They sold that, and they moved to Cambria and, and started a really successful retail gift business here. Uh, I decided that I would take some of the products that they were doing well with in the gift business and I would try them at the Orange County Swap Meet. So I, I had decided that I would first get this Swap Meet business going on the weekends, and then once I got settled with that, I would quit my job, and then I would do that full-timer. And I, I remember distinctly, I came home What kind of from, products were these? Oh, just general gift items, whatever the popular gift items were at the time. Maybe rain uh-huh. sticks. Do you remember rain sticks? Yeah, sure. It sounded so fun. I, I, I got really excited about it. I remember... 
you know, finding the guy that you rent your booth from and then kind of getting the idea of how I would put the stuff and, you know, and it just, it was, it was really exciting. It was fun. I liked the idea of starting my own little business. And I, I distinctly remember I came home from that meeting with the guy to set the booth up for the swap meet. When I got home, my answer machine had like 15 messages on it. As I hit the answer machine, every, everyone was somebody who had obviously been crying and they said, you need to call me right now. You need to call me. What could this possibly be? Um, I finally ended up uh, calling a friend to find out what was going on. And my best friend from high school, you know, a little backstory on this guy, uh, we were just glued to the hip from, from yeah. about fifth grade all the way through college. We were college roommates together. I mentioned I went to Europe after college. We went to Europe together, spent four months together. Um, but we were like as close as two people can get. And what had happened, all the answer machine uh, people were calling to tell me that uh, he had actually been killed. Okay. So he was working as a cab driver after we got, uh, after we graduated from school, engineering school. Yeah. And uh, he was actually working with a group that was trying to help uh, Latino gang members uh, reintegrate into society. And uh, he was just out drinking with a guy one night, and they were walking around a neighborhood, and kind of this guy was teaching him about the Latino gang culture, yeah. and they ended up being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some guys came and, and tried to rob him, and uh, there was a fight ensued, and they came back with guns, and they ended up shooting my, my friend. There's uh, something about uh, the, the first you know, person you're close to of your own age that dies. You know, for me, it happened when I was around 16, and it was a friend that got killed in a motorcycle accident. Yeah. You know, less dramatic, less violent. But, yeah. You know, it's that first dose of, you know, you're a part of a population that's immortal. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it rocks you to the core. And, you know, and that was it. I, uh, I literally thought, well, you know, obviously I wasn't too stable to begin with. So my first thought was, okay, when, when, what happens to a psyche when they're not stable to begin with? And then some tragedy like this happens. So my first thought is, well, it's great. I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life in a mental institution of some sort. <laughs> I, I, uh, this is right, of course, right when I got the call. I, I dropped it, uh, the phone, and I just went to my knees, and I just thought, well, okay, well, I'll try to get near family so that they can at least put me in the right spot, make sure that I don't, I'm not a bother to everyone else. So I drove up here to Cambria and, you know, and I went to my parents' place and uh, over the next week before the funeral just really just came completely undone, uh -huh. completely to the, to the core. I just had no, no real reason to live, no real reason to not live, just, just became an empty shell. And, uh, you know, through the process of going to his funeral and staying with his family for a week or so and then... You know, as the healing started to come out of that, it was, you know, it was kind of like life basic training where they take you and they break you down to nothing. And I really felt that that's what happened. I, I really got broken down to nothing. Do you think this is a compliment to feeling like you're already sort of off track? You know, went for the wrong degree, wound up in the wrong job, even though you're enjoying the, you know, the swap meet business. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an okay for now, but is this your destination sort of thing? And, and then you get jarred once again by, uh, yeah. Losing one thing you think is stable, which is knowing where your friends are. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's a great gift that comes in uh, realizing your true mortality and that you will be gone in just a heartbeat. I, I distinctly remember uh, holding my friend's ashes in my hands and looking at them and thinking, this is it? You know, all the hopes, fears, dreams that, mm -hmm. that he had that 
And, and this is what it ends up being, uh, you know, a two-pound box of yeah. ashes. And so there's great power that comes in that. I mean, along with once you hit rock bottom, you, uh, you become quite fearless because what can happen? That's all that can happen is I can end up in that box of ashes, which I'll be there anyways. But I, I became much more fearless. And, and out of not knowing what to do and being very fragile, uh, you know, my parents said, we will teach you this gift business. And honestly, out of lack of anything better to do, I said, sure. And I quit my job in engineering, folded up everything, and moved up to Cambria. Did it feel like anything else? I mean, did it feel like a compromise? Or, no. you know, it was going to be a life less lived because it's just sort of a default or something? Or did it feel like comforting? Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's really, I knew I didn't want to be in that cubicle. And I, I, I just, I really was just trying something different. Yeah. And, you know, they had the knowledge and they said, we'll teach you how to run a retail gift store. And I said, great. Really just kind of going along with the flow. Mm -hmm. Nothing better to do. I mean, many mornings it was hard to get out of bed. I mean, it was simply hard to get up. But, uh, you know, my dad would come and say, I remember distinctly him waking me up one time at about noon and said, hey, let's go. Let's get going. And I didn't want to do it. And he, yeah. he pretty much grabbed me and said, let's do it. Let's, we're we're going to do something today. We're going to we're going to start building cabinets for this retail store. So we you know we started this this little tiny gift retail store with uh, you know an old kitchen table that I had bought at a garage sale and got a little place to rent and started putting out some gift items that my parents had recommended. They gave me a sixty thousand dollar loan and then uh, that's a huge loan considering where they were coming from income wise. Absolutely. And I mean, really, I'm amazed that you know. Yes. I don't mean anything by it, obviously, no. but that they had that money put away considering what they were making to even loan it out in the first place. Well, after they kind of discovered my mom was this retail genius, yeah. um, they started making money. So they really were pulling, okay. But I would say that yeah. the 60 grand was probably 75 or 80% of their entire saving. Yeah, so you know, I started this little tiny gift store and it was successful from day one. I mean, we just started selling stuff. And then I noticed that there was no one in our town that did a broad-based art gallery. Mm -hmm. Everyone in our town was doing local. Uh, they were great artists that lived in town and they each had their own little galleries. But, but there wasn't anyone who was selling nationally. For example, Bev Doolittle was huge at that time. Mm -hmm. And no one in town was selling her and I thought, wow. You know, everyone's focused on these little local artists. What about the artists that are selling nationally? Why is there's a ton of people coming to this town? Why isn't anyone doing that? Over about a two-year period, the gift store morphed into a art gallery, and that's where I found my talent was was finding uh, art that people liked. And I, I don't have any art background. I don't know much about art in general, or didn't. Mm -hmm. But what I did know was when somebody... Did that intimidate you at all? No, not at all. So just... I'm, was so it just a company so figure it out as you go along or... Uh, you know, I, I think when you hold somebody dear to you, when you hold their ashes in your hand, yeah. you become less fearful. I mean, you just, you simply... Things didn't intimidate me and I really had nothing to lose. I mean, there was right. just nothing to lose. I was starting from the base. And so, so, you know, that some people say, wow, that was so brave. Or I've gotten that a lot when I've told the story, you know, wow, that's amazing. You know, you must be afraid. I was like, no, no, not at all. Don't, I had nothing to lose. I, I literally got to the point where it's either death or try uh -huh. something different. 
So when it was so you're not so much measuring up against holding your friend's ashes, although that's part of the sobering aspect of it. But you're still kind of seems like working off of the point where it was live this way or kill yourself. Uh, yeah, I wasn't suicidal at that point, but it was definitely live this way or go back. But to it seems that. like that's where you put the pin in the map or, you know, where, where what you seem to be measuring things up against when you say there's nothing to lose. Yeah, well, I, I, there, there wasn't anything to lose in that everything I was doing was so much better and more fun already. Just the idea that I could get up and okay. go into work when I wanted to, that, you know, it, it just, it felt, it felt right. And, and again, I didn't know anything about art, but what I realized I was good at was I was really good at reading people. And so when somebody would look at something and I would see joy come across their face, it didn't matter what it was. It could have been... Uh, you know, a picture of a pig, or it could have been a little sculpture of a gargoyle, or it could have been, you know, it didn't matter. When they looked at it, when they got joy, I thought, wow, a lot of people like this. I'm going to get more of this. Right. Hey, no one really likes this. I like these. No one really likes it. I'm going to get less of that. I'm going to get rid of that. And that's it. I, I was, I'm, I'm really good at reading people and seeing if they are truly enjoying something or they are not. Mm-hmm. And when they do, they show that to me by buying it. And so the whole business in my art gallery has been much more based on what does the public love, not what do I love. You know, and you think about it as a, as a very simple approach, but I just learned recently that Banksy's people make a decision on what they're going to print based upon looking at the clicking records on their own website when they put up his new works. Yeah. Whatever gets the most clicks on it, that's what they're going to publish. Just as simple as that. You know, we're so unique. All individuals are so unique. But there are groups that like certain things. And when I see a group of people that love something, I get more of it. And, yeah. and the thing, the thing that, that has brought me joy is not teaching art or not showing art to the world. It's, it's reading what they really love and getting more of it. And that knowledge has helped me now see things and go, you know what, I bet a lot of people are going to like that. And, and that's, that's just it. It has never been about me, what I like. Um, I've noticed a, a trend in art galleries as, you know, the gallery is named after the gallery director, which I always think is really interesting, which is fine. And I've, I now wholesale a lot of art, and I hear galleries say, oh, yeah, that's, that's not something that, that, that I care for or that, that I think will sell. And I was like, well, how, how do you know? Yeah, have you have you have you tried? Have you put it in front of people? And that's it. That's it. And so you know, as you know, we have a trusted group of people. When you bring me something and say this sells, I believe you. When you when you just come at it purely from trying to make the most amount of people happy, and you know, have the most amount of people buy stuff, I think you're much more successful than trying to find what you think is important. Well, there's a balance, though, and I'll just bounce this off if you. What you hear a lot, too, from a lot of gallery owners is, and I'm, of course, in a unique position where I talk to a lot of gallery yeah. owners, they'll say things like, well, I can't sell anything I wouldn't want for myself, or I don't believe in myself, or it doesn't excite me, or whatever it is. Because I'll make the argument that, you know, even though people might be attracted to a piece of artwork, all art at some point or another needs to be sold. You know, a connection has to be made, and if you don't possess the energy for it yourself, even though they might love it, 
and there might be an audience for it, can you complete that process? Yeah. Some say that from a place of integrity, you know, like it's just a statement of, if I can't stand behind it, I, I, I can't in good consciousness, uh, mm-hmm. you know, represent it. But others pragmatically say that, like, I just can't be the salesperson for that particular piece. Well, that's making a huge assumption, isn't it? That's making the assumption that the person that you're selling it to is going to have similar feelings than you do uh, about it. So like well, it from, certainly is a quagmire. Well, first of all, we've got to keep the doors open. So we want to sell as much as possible. That's the basis of, of my galleries. I, and I think that's fantastic when, when people afford themselves the ability to educate the public on a certain mm-hmm. type of art in a retail art environment. But most of us just aren't there. I, you know, I do this to, uh, to feed my family. So finding the, the most amount of people that get the most amount of joy out of the product that I sell, that's what gets me excited. So then it kind of folds upon itself. And when I yeah. see like, oh, this brings so much joy to so many people, I actually start to like it. And then I start to actually look into it more. And I start to see more in it that I didn't see before. And this so, certainly becomes legitimate right there in that moment, right? Well, what is legitimate? I mean, if, Absolutely. Yeah, but that, it doesn't matter what it is. If yeah. people love it, you can feel comfortable that you're selling something of quality because clearly it's, it's doing the job. That's right. right. It's all and we're producing. Right? The job is supposed is. to be making someone happy. I mean, there's more fancier ways of breaking that down of yes. how, what place people that has in someone's life. Yeah. But the making you, in quotes, happy is the basic version of that. And yeah, you know, I, I was just reading that book that I showed you. Yeah. And they brought up something I've heard before, which comes you know, from business theory, and you hear it a lot in business schools. No, and it's this, no one ever buys something, they hire something, they hire it to do a job. You know, you don't buy your car, you hire your car to, in the most basic form, get you from point A to point B, get you to your job, right. you know, and then in other forms, make you feel comfortable, make you feel like you have some status, you know, sure. get yourself, a, attract a nice girlfriend maybe at the bar, whatever it is, you've hired the car to do that. Right. And if it does it, it's a good employee. That's true. Whatever it is, you know, you, you, you do, you get some sort of enjoyment out of it. I mean, and, and that enjoyment comes in so many different ways. I mean, one, one way of, of course, is, you know, the, the typical, you know, I look at this picture and it reminds me of my grandfather uh-huh. and I have great feelings about him. And, and so I put this in my home because I get that great feeling back over and over again. And then there's the other aspect as you get into higher uh, end forms of art is, and this is something that I like, you know, I, I bought that, I enjoy it, I love it, and incidentally, it's, it's valuable now. A lot of people want this, and there isn't a lot of it out there. So, I mean, I also have this, me personally, uh, you know, financially, I want to be stable, and so I, I see something that I can enjoy and also have it hold value. Well, I like that. And it's something that I have that's rare that no one's going to see, then I can also show my friends that. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen that too, is like, you know, having art that people can show to their friends and teach their friends and then connect with other people over it. So, you know, I get enjoyment out of that myself. I get financial stability out of that. I show my friends it and then we join and we become closer talking about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, and that's the thing that art has that, that, you know, so many items out there don't have is it has this whole social connection with it and so many aspects of it that are appealing Interestingly enough, it doesn't do anything for anyone physically, right? Like, you know, you can't eat it. You, you can't drive it. Right. You can't light it on fire. For it's, not could, I guess, but it's not a tool. It's not a tool in any yeah. way. 
So in many ways, it's such a well, beautiful... Well, it, it's not an obvious tool, but you just actually kind of described it as a tool. Well, Because I want to connect with my friends. I want to connect with myself. I want to feel happy and comfortable in my own environment. Right. When it does that, it, it's a tool. It just, it's not the way we've ever been described tools to ourselves. Yeah, I mean, everything it does for us is emotional. That's why I enjoy selling it so much more than, you know, more practical things like furniture or stereo equipment. And I also think it's the thing that's going to save the art industry over a lot of the other industries that are out there. And, and the, thing, the, the one thing I've always loved about this business uh, is that I think we're protected in some ways because of the emotional aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think I, you know, I think being in you know, tourist-type locations, people want to buy art when they're having that feeling. You know, they associate art with feelings. And I know this from experience. The first time I went to Hawaii, I almost bought a Wyland. Yeah. I saw a whale, and then there was a picture of a whale. And there's a beautiful salesperson that wants to sell me that uh-huh. and give me this feeling to take home forever. Right. And the lights look fantastic on it, and it's expensive, but, but I like it. And so I experienced that firsthand, you know, and this was really early on in my art career. And I was like, wow, that it really is. I mean, she's selling me the feeling that I'm having right now, and I'm trying to keep that. And that's a big part of what we, what we do. And the Internet, no doubt, has, has changed just to stop you for a second, because yeah. you're about to go into another subject. Um, I always say to people when they ask about our business, and I say, well, you know, the majority of art gets sold and people are on vacation. And they always say, well, why is that? And, and my answer has always been, well, you're removed from your, um, you're removed from your financial commitments. You know, you're not looking at your table where there's a bill for the new washer and dryer you just had yeah. to buy. You're not at home where you're remembering that the roof has to be replaced. You're not connected to all those anxieties. And you've actually kind of given yourself a certain degree of permission before you went out of town of, I'm on vacation. I'm not going to stress about that stuff. I'm going to spend money on nice dinners without worrying that they're more expensive than they should be. You know, we're going to have a nice hotel and not worry about that. Yeah. And, and you got that relaxed. But it just hit me as you were talking. So often when you're on vacation is when you start having those thoughts about uh, how much more you need to be relaxing in life, how you need to start getting in tune with the things that really make a difference and mean something to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, have you ever had that mental exercise sure. when you're on vacation? You know, yeah, I'm going to go back. I'm going to relax. You I'm stop the treadmill. Sure. Right, exactly. No, for sure. And I think that's going to be why you won't see art galleries uh, disappearing you know, at the rate of other consumer type goods. So I do feel mm-hmm. comfortable in our industry moving forward. You know, a lot of people are really frightened by, you know, big box stores and, and the internet. You know, I know recently Amazon tried kind of a art type space and those don't really intimidate me And in that, you know, it's really much more about creating a relationship with somebody, creating a feeling and then gaining their confidence. And, you know, we have a lot of people coming to Art Gallery, and we are their destination. Mm-hmm. We are the vacation destination. They're going to go to Artifacts Gallery to enjoy going in there. That's part of their fun of their vacation. You know, we create a relationship with them. Of course, we give them the benefit of being able to go to the Internet whenever they want to and yeah. see what's new. I just, I think we're a little bit insulated. You know, my, my parents were in the clothing business for many years as well, and they were a little bit insulated in that you don't typically want to buy a shirt or a pair of jeans online because you want to try those on and see how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just recently, companies like Zappos kind of took that out. Oh, we'll send you everything. 
try right. it, then you send it back. They saw that was their one obstacle and they addressed it. They addressed it right yeah. away. And, and things like that for those types of industries are really scary. But, but you know, other types of products, not only art, but other types of products are also bought on vacation when people are feeling good. Mm-hmm. And, and really it is about establishing relationships. No one wants to pay more somewhere right. else. And I think that's the biggest change that we've seen in the art industry relative to the internet is that, you know, as art gallery owners, we've got to come to some sort of an agreement as what is the playing field for everybody? What do we all agree to? And, and then we're all back on the same basis. I think that still comes down to people like me, unfortunately. Yeah. I think if you were dependent upon just gallery owners coming to that conclusion, it just takes one rotten apple and then none of it works. True. Yeah, you have to have a, an agreed upon set of rules. And, you know, we, 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 I think we've been in this business long enough now online to know what those are. And it's pretty simple. And that's the other thing I love about art. Being a limited product by nature, it's limited to the amount of people that can have it. Right. And so we are really a family. And that's the one thing I've noticed since the advent of the internet is other galleries are not enemies. We're all doing the same thing. There is enough business to go around. We can actually help each other more than we do hurt each other by communicating. But don't you ever feel it's kind of a couple different categories of art galleries out there? You know, there are good citizens, and then there are people who are just decidedly, this is the way they're going to operate. And they're going to, you know, they've decided they're going to be mercenary in their tactics. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully our vendors are there to protect us. Yeah. You know, hopefully, uh, you know, and, and that's how I am with my wholesale business. You know, I want a core group of very strong, very reliable, very good art galleries. And that's all I need. You know, there's certainly going to be bad apples out there, but, but they don't seem to last very long anymore. And, you know, I, I think that... Well, they're getting the worst kind of customers. How so? I mean, it's a bad model just for that. Well... There are people out there where their priority is that they want to make sure at all times they're getting absolutely the cheapest price possible. And they're going to put a lot of effort into that. They're going to keep on calling and calling and calling until the prices get low. And then they're going to call the next three guys they, they just talked to and hit them with the lowest price. Yeah. And then they're going to push a little bit harder and maybe even lie a little bit about how big of a customer they're going to be, you know, whatever sure. it is. And they're going to drive. Eventually, they'll find someone that's going to get it down to an embarrassingly low price. Yeah. That customer, though, is the least likely person to ever come back. Yeah, no, and it's so true. And I, but I think we've come. I think we've come through that. I don't. I don't think that there's that many people out there doing that anymore because the people that are out there have seen that, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully the vendors realize that and and put up firm boundaries. You know, yeah. this is it. This is our retail price. If you if you offer it for less than that in any kind of advertisement or through any kind of email or even on the phone, we're, we're gonna we're gonna clamp down on you, and you may not be selling our product anymore. And and once that's known. You know, this is the lowest price the artist will allow us to sell this work for. We'd really love to have your business. And that's it. You know, right. then, you go, then you go back to who's the better salesperson, who has the better display, who has the better gallery. And so once those boundaries are set, and I think everyone in our business now has set those lines in the sand. I, don't, I, I haven't seen any situation. You know, we used to get an email. Here's the pieces I want. Here's the prices I've been offered so far. If you can beat it, you'll, we'll consider you. Um, and that just doesn't seem to happen anymore. We're not, uh, you know, like a, you know, an Amazon. And you go look at a book, or you go look at a stereo, or you go look at a TV, and 
and there's this guy's five bucks less than this guy's five bucks less than this guy's five bucks less than this guy and right and it's i mean their margins have gotten to be just nothing you know and we're a little bit insulated in that i think if our vendors can hold the line and create boundaries um i think i think we can be successful still moving forward in this new internet age well we're also different than a lot of products in this way too which is art specifically uh over other things people want to have a relationship with its origin and that's an important value when i buy a pair of shoes off of zappos i don't need a relationship with nike they exist they're just a company they're a manufacturer whether i'm personally connected to it or not uh doesn't affect the value of the brand even if that's what i'm concerned about yeah whereas art there is a base desire for things that are that personal to feel that you have some connection with the artist and if you're selling art properly part of the value of what you're selling is that that artist has some worth themselves yes and the more this becomes a transactional process of you know dollars and cents and just the mechanical you know sales transaction the more distant you as the collector are from that emotional connection from the person who created it in the first place yeah you know and you just spark something in my mind that i think we could do to stabilize the environment anymore or even more is is to try to develop those relationships between the galleries you know keep the galleries to smaller numbers in, in absolute key locations. Yeah. And then and then really establish a better relationship with the artist and those galleries, particularly. I mean, you know, a guy that we do really good with, Tim Cotterell, Frogman, I've been working with him for twenty four years now. And he comes every year. And mm-hmm. and we used to have shows with a thousand people, uh, you know, a two hour wait to to get to shake his hand. And we don't anymore. We don't. I mean, we have small shows with a couple hundred people, um, but he's here, and he gets to know everyone who works here, and he's mm-hmm. part of our family, and it's Artifacts Gallery and the Frogman working together to bring his art to you. And so that's an area where I think we could probably shore things up a little bit and, and try to get you know, more artists to just come in and, and become part of our business, you know? Wouldn't take much, you know. One, one, two visits a year. Come in, say hi, see the staff. Maybe it's a show. Maybe it's not a show. I think that's a good. That's a, a, an interesting concept. I think this is a. Uh, it's a rediscovery. That's our business is a tough business. Selling art is not easy. It's fun. It's rewarding. It's certainly a lot more enjoyable than uh, necessarily being uh, the designer of aircraft seats in a cubicle, yeah. right? <laughs> but it's not easy. It's not complicated, but it's not easy. And when the internet arrived, roughly around the same time as cheap printing arrived Mm -hmm. and a couple other related things, I think a lot of us in this business saw this as, hey, a lot of our pain is going to be taken away. It's going to be easier to communicate with my customers. You know, maybe I'm going to have to present a little bit less often and be all anxious about who's coming in my front door. Uh, The cost of investing in a program is going to go down because printing is now cheap. And in this mindset of trying to make something more of a commodity and more systematic and use more of these tools as a streamlined way to do our business easier, we lost contact to some degree with those basic things. 
the things that really come from the hard part of our business, and it's the stuff you were just talking about, yeah. connecting people to the artist, because it's work. Putting together a show up for the artist, yeah, you know, that doesn't just happen. That's a whole process of art dealers needing to crack the phones and, you know, call all their collectors and talk it up and build and sending out invitations and then calling again and you know, yeah. running ads or whatever else is involved. It's work. It is. It's a lot of work. And, we, you know, our shows, we, we don't really do them anymore because the cost involved and a little bit of that excitement has been lost when you, you know, it doesn't seem that we have that that real excitement in the air to, to meet the artists anymore. But, but still having them as part of your gallery community, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's important for them to get out to these locations and shake some hands and get some pictures taken. Um, and for them to see this more as their galleries. And, you know, they have 20 partners in their business as opposed to this uh, elitist, if you will, or more like, I'm the artist represented by all these galleries that want to represent me. I know I stopped so abruptly and, and, and I didn't get to say thank you to, to Thad and I didn't uh, say goodbye to him before I left and there's a reason for it because we weren't done. No, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, there was just too much good stuff here. I edited it down, I edited it down, and I kind of crunched it till we got down just to the gold of it, and still, it was too much to put into just one episode, and that's why we're going to go into two, and trust me, in the second one, it's just as fascinating, and it's just as worth your while, and I look forward to seeing you then when we come back for it, but until next time, I do have a request. If you're enjoying this podcast, and, and no, don't worry, this is not the point where I hit you up for any money, but if you're enjoying this podcast, if you think it's worthwhile, if it's something you would like to hear more of, you don't need to put us in your will, you don't need to send us a big cash contribution, but I do ask for a couple of favors, and they make a big difference. So if you can find the time to do them, I'd appreciate it. The first is... Go over to iTunes and give us a review. If you like the show, please let people know. When podcasts are rated in iTunes, it calls attention to them, and they get more listeners. And if we have more listeners, we have more community, and I think it's going to be great for all of us. Two, subscribe. I found out rather recently that the majority of listeners to this show listen on the website, and that's fine. But you'd be surprised to find out that you can actually take this with you wherever you go. You can load it into podcast applications that live on your phones and live in all kinds of mobile devices, and you can listen to this at the beach or on your commute to work. And when you subscribe, that makes a difference too. It gets noticed. You can do it in any form, and if you need some help on it, hell, send me an email. I'll walk you through it. The other one, the third one, the last one, spread the word. Tell someone... Put a link to it on your Facebook page. Give us a shout on Twitter. Whatever it is you do to talk to the rest of the world, please let folks know who you think might be just as interested in this as you are, and I would appreciate that as well. So, until next time, my art-paddling comrades, have a good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. 
You can find us at artdealer.show.com.